0: And so I want to lead us together tonight through um, this prayer that comes from Jesus' opening words of the Sermon on the Mount through the Beatitudes. So would you now um, pray with me? Jesus, you invite us into a new way of being called life with you in your kingdom here and now but we confess that we are so used to life as it is that we have trouble trusting your way and joining you in it. We confess that we need healing that we don't even know how to ask for. Because we have always been told that the rich and powerful are blessed, but you say the poor and the humble are the ones who receive your kingdom. And so we ask please humble us and give us the gift of seeing ourselves as you see us. And Jesus, you know that we want to be happy all the time, but you say, blessed are those who mourn. Help us, Lord, to mourn the sin in our own hearts and in the world around us so that we may know the joy, the comfort of your healing. We confess, Jesus, that we learn to be opportunistic to get ahead, and we value being well-fed and self-sufficient. But you, Jesus, tell us that it's the meek, the ones who let you lead, who will inherit the earth. And somehow it's the ones who are constantly hungry and thirsty for justice who will be satisfied in the end. And so, even though it is painful for us to ask it, please free us from our ability to control our lives so that you can lead us into what is good. Please. Jesus, make us truly and insatiably hungry and thirsty for things to be made right in our world. Because our systems bend toward vengeance and we confess that we do too. But you say it is the merciful who will receive the gift of mercy. Oh, Jesus, help us truly to know your mercy so that we can be people who give it. And we confess that our hearts are divided. Divided up into all these little desires so that we spend all of our time and energy chasing things that hardly matter. But you say it's the ones who have pure, single-hearted, desired hearts who truly get to see God. So we ask, Lord, that you would grow in our hearts your desire so that we may delight in seeing our one desire filled. Oh, Jesus, we confess that we care much more about not making waves than we care about making peace. And we resist anything that smells like persecution, like the plague, Because our own comfort is more important than your righteousness. Forgive us, holy God. Teach us to make peace as you have made peace, that we may be a blessing to the world. And give us your own courage, Christ, that we may not avoid or attack when opposition comes, but that we may meet it like you have with love and acceptance. Jesus, we could not live this blessed way without you. And yet we also confess that we try to live it without you far too often. Help us to remember that you have invited us to join your life. And also give us the grace and the courage to take you up on your invitation. We ask all these things Because we trust the one we ask is infinitely more powerful and more trustworthy than we the ones who are asking. And so together we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. I drew some pictures for us about the Gospel of Matthew that I will reference. And just... Thank you for that clap, young lady, that I will reference here in just a moment. But I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, we're going to read starting at verse 21. This is an overview about the Gospel of Matthew because the Gospel of Matthew is... Aha to us. Some of you can't see this whiteboard. I didn't take a picture and put it up on the screen so that if you want to, you can actually sit closer. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 7 starting with verse 21. You're welcome to move close at any time you want, all right? So I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word for us this evening out of the, the, last, the last of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. So hear the word of the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. doers." But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain came down, the uh, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This, my friends, is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together... Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last year, Holly Watson and Annabelle and I, Holly is my wife, Annabelle and Watson are my kids, we went last year with my mom and dad to Alaska on a a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. So here we were in America's last frontier, and it was amazing, And the highlight of the week for me was hiking up the side of this mountain to the top where we got to see this glacier. The temperature was cool and it was wet and there was this this kind of fog that surrounded the place. Now I love doing that kind of stuff, but this was a different kind of hiking than I had ever experienced. And it was mostly because of the terrain. We walked up the side of that mountain and, and we walked on this path in the rainforest, and it was, it, it, was hard, it was really hard to take everything in. The path through that rainforest took us up, and then it took us down, it took us all around. We worked our way through it, and the nature that kind of enveloped us, I mean, it was like a canopy over us, was breathtaking. But, but so we wouldn't d- get distracted, there were these, every once in a while, there were these little signs on the path. That pointed us to the way in which we should go. Now the forest like held this canopy over us, but I'll tell you what, nothing compared to the site before us when we broke out off the top of that and we were we were there on that glacier that was resting there right next to that mountain. And we could tell, I mean you, you broke out of the canopy, you walked off the path, you were on the glacier next to the mountain. And that is where you could, you could take it all in. We had this new and fresh perspective. We could, it was like we could see everything. Now, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been doing, as Pastor McHale reminded us, and actually, all of Matthew's gospel is like traversing up the side of a mountain in the fog. It's like you're walking on this path that leads you up, but there are these little small signs along the way, and, and while, you're, while you're walking on the path, you think it's spectacular, which for us, the last five weeks have been spectacular. And you think it's spectacular until you break out and you really see the glory of it all. And once you reach that mountaintop view in this text, you realize that Matthew is like this artistic genius. When you get to this point in chapter 7, It's like he is opening up a whole bunch of stuff for us. So chapter 7 is this climax. It's Jesus' big finish. And it all comes to a head here. And he's been showing us these little signs, leading us up to the top, so we can really now see everything. So what I want to do is I want to point to some of those, those little signs as we've been walking on the path. And the first sign is this. It says, Not everyone who comes to me and says things in my name, or even does marvelous spiritual acts, or even leads God initiatives, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the first sign. This is what Jesus says. Excuse me. I think I just swallowed a bug. I'm going to be all right, I think. The first sign is this, you know. The warning is there. It says, be careful. You need to watch out. There are people out there who are not who they say they are. And and Jesus says, it's super easy to see who those people are. You know them by the fruit that they produce. They'll, They'll say that they'll do one thing, but then they actually do another. They'll say that they're on my side, and they might even do something charitable or good or for others, but in the end, you know that they're not with me because those charitable acts are not for their neighbors at all. They're just acts that end up serving their own purposes. Jesus says, even though they may have basked in the dream of God-sponsored projects and even drew a crowd, it really doesn't mean anything because that stuff doesn't impress me, Jesus says, and you'll know if they are with me, it'll be because their character is revealed in their practices. Now, you may not realize this, but Jesus is throwing some serious shade here. Much like we are now, the people of that day were in the middle of this political fever pitch. And the leader of the movement was a king whose name was Herod. And Herod spoke of wanting the things of God, and he even made political promises assuring people that he would grant them religious sovereignty, he sent them the message that he and he alone would be the one who would keep them safe. You may have heard something like, like that before. He said, I and I alone would be the one that would watch out for them, and I will lead them into safety and security. And so he, he set out on God-led, God-sponsored projects. And one of those great projects was the project called The Restoration of the Temple of Jerusalem. Now Herod, a political leader and a king, wasn't a dummy. Like the pharaoh of old, he knew that he needed to hold these Jewish people in their place. So Herod went out and he started raising funds by overtaxing the ancient poor and the middle class of that day and he went around making speeches and he got the religious elite on his side and he entered into this massive building project that ended up earning him political points among the religious constituency it reminds me this is it, it's funny how history repeats itself it reminds me of the state of the union speech where the president of the united states promised religious sovereignty about uh, for certain uh, religious groups He spoke of God and God-led projects. He talked about how only he could provide religious sovereignty, like, you know, right to life initiatives and prayer in schools and individual personal rights. But then just a few days later at a national prayer breakfast, he he ripped down his political opponents, speaking of them with, with contempt and disdain. That whole loving your neighbor thing, turning the other cheek that Jesus spoke about, just here in this very text, well, it didn't play out on that day. And it never played out for the Jews under Herod's regime. Herod did things for his own purposes. And we know we know from history that the Jews under Herod's leadership found no solace, no safety, and great harm came to them in the end. You know, I think you know this, that Jesus is the only leader, right or left, conservative, political, uh, conservative, uh, politically, liberal, politically, or even moderate. Jesus is the only leader whose practices matched his speech, who led with a gentle yoke and a light burden. Well, that's the first little sign. And you go, whoa, that's kind of tough. Well, and then I think there 's a second sign along the path, and i I think this is why Jesus points to the building projects of Herod, and he says these are the second signs because in this text, Jesus says, "Anyone who hears these words of mine well he 's like a wise man; he builds a house upon a rock, a foundation, but anyone who doesn 't." is an idiot who spends all of his resources, all of his time and all of his money putting on all the fancy furnishings and he builds the whole thing on a sand foundation. Well then for that guy the winds become they start to come and the waters rise and they beat against the house and one of those houses stands and the other one's crumble. Now I heard this and maybe you heard this little parable as children. I used to hear about this in Sunday school. We would sing songs about it. The rains came down and the, f- yeah, you've heard it, right? You know the parable when you were children and and you learned the lesson and the lesson went like this. Only dummies and crooks build houses on sand, right? But there is far more to this lesson. We learned the lesson that Jesus is the rock. You need to build your life on the rock. But There's a whole lot more going on in this lesson. It's more than don't be a dummy, don't be a crook. It's more than just build your house or, or your life on the rock, which is Jesus. Now, we may not notice this because we didn't grow up in first century Palestine, but the first hearers of this parable would have heard this lesson and they would have been able to see behind the picture that Jesus gives. And it would have been shocking to them. Because Jesus is actually throwing shade again. Not far from where he was telling this little parable, about a hundred or so miles away in Jerusalem, which was called the Great City of David, or the Great City of God, was another house. And King Herod, the king of the Jews, was in the middle of rebuilding his in the middle of his rebuilding project the rebuilding project of the Jewish temple. Now, the confession from the Jewish people was that the temple was the place where God lived. It was the place where the people of God said that heaven and earth actually came together in a glorious, God-revealed manner. They said this was the summit. This was the place. And the Jews would speak about this place, and they would say, God's house. And then Herod took that, and he made it his campaign slogan, and he said this is he spoke of it as the house that was built upon the rock. These are Herod's words. And Herod then poured tons and tons of money into the project to win political favours, and he would and, and he would say about this project in his political campaigns that it was foolproof against wind and weather. Now, Herod was rebuilding this for Herod's own political advantages. He was doing it for appearances. He was doing it to earn political favors from the Jews. But we know, however, in history, history has told us that in 70 AD, a number of years after Jesus was crucified and then resurrected, that the Romans came up against the Jews and they completely destroyed this temple. And Jesus could see this coming a mile away. And I think that's why Jesus really takes a shot. Because then he says, this is our sign, foolishness. He says to think that Herod, his systems, his politics, all of his wealth, and even the efforts that he's putting forth, to think that they're going to stay strong is just foolish." Because when the wind blows, the whole thing is going to come down like a house of cards. Don't put your eggs into that basket, he says. Don't put, your, don't put your trust in a house that's built on sand. No matter how strong you think it is. That's kind of our second sign. But there are even more signs along the way that we need to pay attention to. And this is the third sign. Now the book of Matthew was written for people who spoke everyday Greek. And when people translated the text out of Greek into English, what they do is they try to make sure, they, they try to do their best to make sure that the meaning is clear. But sometimes, because Greek and English aren't the same, sometimes things get a little missed. So we have to actually look deeper, and we need to pay attention to this third sign. So Jesus says that anyone who hears what he, Jesus, has to say and put them into practice, is like a wise man. And he who doesn't is like a foolish man. And then he tells two parallel stories about these two men who really are great house builders, but one builds the house on the rock, one builds the house on the sand. And these stories are exactly identical in the Greek, except for a couple of small details that make a huge difference. Now I want to show you this, okay? It says, therefore... Everyone who hears the word, these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. If you look at the other story, it goes, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house in the sand. You can see where the little differences are, but the stories are exactly the same. And if you read this in English, you wouldn't really notice some things. So, everyone who who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock, and then the rains came, and uh, they came down, and the streams rose, and then the winds blew, and it beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. On the other side, it said, the rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against that house and it fell down with a great crash. Now, if you're just reading this in English, you really don't notice that the words beat against are translated the same in English from Greek, but they're actually not the same word in the Greek. Now, this might not be anything of interest to you, So, uh, as a college professor, I'm inviting you to sit up, take out your ear pods, put down your phones, and pay attention because the lesson comes now, okay? In the first case, with the first story, the winds come and it says it beat against. But the Greek word is prospepto. That's what it means. But in the second case the winds come and it beat against is how we translate it into English but the word is actually proskopto Now proskopto is translated strike against or what we have as beat against but interestingly nowhere else in the New Testament translates the word prospepto to strike against and in that first story about the wise man when the winds come it does not beat against prospee it does not beat against proscopto it actually prospepto which means that it falls prostrate before so let me give you the picture jesus is saying everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them to practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on a sand foundation and then the hurricanes come and the winds blow and proscopto, it strikes against the house or it beats the house and the house comes crashing down but everyone who hears these words of mine and then puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock foundation. The hurricane comes and the wind blows and they, the winds and the streams and the waters, prospeepto, they fall down prostrate before the house. One is wise and the winds obey. The other is foolish And the winds take over. It's not just a sign. But Jesus is trying to tell us something more. He's trying to say here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you all, you need to know this. I am that house. I'm not like the one 100 miles away. And not only will the wind and the waves be useless, but they will fall down before me. I have authority, authority over the weather. Light breezes are going to take down that other house. But I'm here, and not only will I stand, but I'm in charge of it all. You know, in Matthew, Jesus is accused before he dies of of, of predicting that the temple will collapse. But then he says, just wait, because in three days it will rise again. It's like Jesus saying, I am that house. I am that temple. Temple. But I'm not just the temple, I'm actually the place where heaven and earth come together. I am greater than Herod, and I am the path that will lead you to the summit, which by the way, I'm I also am. I am the center of the cosmos, in charge of it. It bows to me. And anyone who hears these words of mine and does not get sidelined by characters that call out God in my name, but do not do what I say. Well, you you're like a foolish idiot if those things don't come together we look at these signs along the way just in these little verses and then we we launch out onto the summit and just like on the path there in alaska we see these great lessons but then we step out on the and then and while these are things are remarkable kind of like walking up that path jesus has just given us the greatest sermon in history. It's the one that puts him on the messianic map. It's the one that's given given him the prophetic popularity. But it's like we're invited out into the summit, off that path onto the summit. And, And if we just take one more step, we'll see a wider view and we'll notice something that we've never noticed before. Here we are. After watching these signs, we come out of the summit and here is what we read. In chapter 7, verse 28, the end words that Jesus gives us. Now, I drew a picture of what I think is Matthew, and it's Matthew from the summit, or Matthew from the top. And the first thing that we see when we're on the top is this, that Jesus says, or that Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying these things. This is the long wrap-up of the Sermon on the Mount. And when I first read this, Matthew kind of gave me the feeling that these might be Jesus' last words. But if you stand on the summit and you take a large look at the whole book of Matthew, after a number of parables, Jesus says a similar statement in chapter 11. He says, so when Jesus had finished teaching his 12 disciples. Then a few chapters later, a couple chapters later in chapter 13, it says, so when Jesus finished his parables or these parables you can kind of see a little bit of a pattern is developing it's like we're walking up the path and then there are these signs pointing to the summit and then there's more to see because then a few chapters later so when Jesus had finished these words chapter 19 verse 1 but it doesn't stop there because in chapter 26 way 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 at the end of Matthew's gospel it's found again so when Jesus had finished all these words Matthew says this line about Jesus five times, and we need to pay attention because Matthew doesn't do anything flippantly. In fact, we know that Matthew is quite intentional in the way he put his gospel together. If you would look at this, you, wouldn't, you would not see that Matthew writes it in chronological order. He actually is inviting us off the path onto the summit. And we go into the, and we go onto the mountain, and we look over Matthew's terrain, and we find several things. He's not just laying it out in historical order. He's actually patterning his gospel. He has an intro where Jesus is the Messiah, and he starts with the genealogy, so that we learn that he's the son of God, the son of Abraham, excuse me, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, and he's introducing us at the very beginning to a whole new kind of kingdom. And then he's got this section in the middle, and then there is the climax. A new covenant happens, and then he is crucified, and he rises again, and he says, I will be with you forever. Now, in the beginning, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is this Messiah, and he is to usher in a new kingdom that won't be like Caesar's, it won't be like Pilate's, it won't be like Herod's. And Matthew, here in the middle, seems to mark off five blocks of stories teachings in the middle of his gospel. There is a narrative, which is like a story of Jesus, and then there's a discourse, which is like a teaching of Jesus. And it always ends, you know the section ends when it says, when Jesus had finished teaching. And then there's another narrative, story, and then another teaching. And then there's another narrative or story and teaching. And there's another narrative or story and teaching. There's another narrative five times And each one of them, you know the section Matthew's done with, ends with this statement, when Jesus had finished teaching. Now the Holy Scriptures, what we find in our Old Testament, they're called, the Holy Scriptures, uh, excuse me, the Holy Scriptures of the Jewish people, what we find in our Old Testament is called the Torah, which means instruction or teaching or law. And it was their authority. It was their sign along the path and their guideline for good living. And the first five books of the Jewish story, their law, their way was called the Pentateuch. Starts with five. Or what they called the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now Matthew's trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us something. He's trying to show us something implicitly. And he's using a couple of literary tricks. We get up on the summit and if we're paying attention, we can see because he's arranged his gospel in a series of fives. Can you see it? You have the introduction, and you have the climax to the conclusion, but right in the middle, what you have is Matthew implicitly trying to teach us Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, excuse me, Leviticus, Numbers, I can spell, look at that, N-U-B and Deuteronomy. Can you see what he's trying to do here? The Torah, the first five books, were actually their path and their way. And Matthew has arranged his gospel with this thing, narrative teaching, narrative teaching, narrative teaching, narrative teaching. And Jesus, Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is both the new path, and that he's the instruction, and he's the Torah, and he's the summit, he's the temple. He is, he is the place where heaven and earth meet. You know, if we would read Matthew from beginning to end, from the mountaintop view, we would see that Matthew has actually rewritten his gospel to parallel those first five books. In Matthew, We find in Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew begins in the beginning. It's the genealogy, then the birth of the Christ child. We could call that Genesis. Then later on, how the child had to escape the hand of evil. This time it was not this time it was not Pharaoh, but it was it, it was Herod, and this exodus from Egypt plays a part nonetheless. It's an exodus. And then in Jesus' sermon, when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, but now that I tell you, a new law was established. That's Leviticus. Then then when the people heard the good news, more and more and more people, Jews and non-Jews alike, began to follow Jesus, and numbers were added. And then Jesus welcomes them into a new glorious land, a land that's not flowing with milk and honey, but a land that is called the kingdom of heaven that's the story of deuteronomy five you know that throughout the jewish story the people were waiting for longing for a person with god-like authority they wanted a messiah they wanted one who had the power to do something about their ruined lives they wanted one who could come and save them do you see what's happening The one who is the story, the one who is the house, the one who is the temple, the one who is the path, the one who is the sign, the one who is heaven and earth coming together, the one who has the authority of God is also the one that ends the whole thing by saying, I will be with you forever. Jesus is this new path he is the torah he is the embodiment of the of uh, he is the embodiment of heaven and earth coming together he's the new temple he's the embodiment of an actual old story made new and he carries within himself the very authority of god he is not only a house that that will not be moved but the wind and the waves will bow to him and just when we think that it's all that it's all over then Evil and death seem to come upon him, and the things of creation have defeated him and buried him by the authority of God. He's actually raised to new life. And he promises to raise us to new life as well. And Matthew takes these literary tricks to invite us on the top of the mountain and to demonstrate to us that Jesus, not Herod, not Donald Trump, not Bill Gates, not Jeff Bezos, or any of the Democratic candidates not the almighty dollar or even religious ideals, but Jesus, who is the house, the path, the summit, the sign, the temple, who is God with us, is the new Torah, the new instruction, the new way, the new authority for our lives. And he is the only one who has the power to save us when we are broken. And the one who is the new path, and the one who is the new place where heaven and earth are combined, And the one who the winds and the waves bow to is the one who says, do not worry, I have overcome this world and I am with you. My friends, that is the gospel for us. And Matthew tries to tell it in every single way he can. You know, the gospel at the end of Matthew ends with Jesus' resurrection. But it also reminds us that uh, it's a story where Jesus becomes who, exactly who he says he is. And he does exactly what he says he, can, he will do. And so when they mocked him, he didn't respond. And when they challenged him, he told quizzical, sometimes humorous stories that forced them to think differently. And when they struck him, he took the pain. And when they put the worst bit of Roman equipment on his back, a, a heavy cross piece on which he would be killed, he carried it out of the city To the place of his own execution, and when they nailed him to that cross, he prayed for them. And this is the story that we remember every time we gather in this place and come to the table of our Lord, the one who is all of these things that Matthew attempts to try in every which way to communicate, is the one who invites you to this table and to live into the Jesus way. It's at this table where Jesus asked nothing of his followers that he hasn't been willing to do himself or has done himself. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a story about how to behave, it's about a way to live into something new. And it's, it's, the Sermon on the Mount is discovering the living God and the loving and the dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves. So this is a story where we remember and we celebrate with one another when we come to this table. So at our church, this is an open table, it is communion, it is the Eucharist, it is the Lord's Supper, but we could call it if we wanted the trust table because by coming to this table, we open ourselves up to the trusting and the saving work of this one who is absolutely in charge and will not let us go. This is not a Nazarene table, it's Jesus' table and all who are open to the work of God in Christ are welcome to this table. We want no barriers, so we want to let you know our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, but we invite you to come down one of these aisles to one of these servers with your hands cupped, and we want you to have them cupped as a symbol that you're ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. At our church, we do not take communion, we receive it, because all of this is a gift. So come to one of these servers. Allow the servers to put the bread into your hands and say some Really significant words to you. And then when you're ready, dip the bread into the cup, and then you may eat uh, this gift that is offered to you. So friends, allow me to pray for you, and then I want to welcome you to this table. Lord, we're grateful for your servant Matthew, who in every possible way attempts to tell us the story of Jesus and reveal the identity of Jesus to us. It is in this that we learn that he is good to us. And that the one who carries the very authority of God, the one that the cosmos will bow down to, is also the one who invites us into a love relationship with him and reminds us that he has given his life for us. And yet, even in death, the authority of God has raised him up. And so we hold on to the promise that the authority of God will raise us up as well. All through this season of Epiphany, We have longed for our healing and we pray and we trust that it can happen at a table like this among friends like this. So we come ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from you. And for these things we are grateful. So my friends you are welcome to come to this table whenever you are ready.